the reading from James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. Is anyone among you <coughs> suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to no one, to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning, especially um, in August as we get ready for the return of, of the school year and more people coming and, and visiting. That is one of the blessings of being here in a campus town. But of course, it is, is it the Word of God that, that calls us, uh, that creates us, that crafts us as the church. So before we, we turn to God's Word, let us come together in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together. We thank you for your Word. We thank you for your message. We thank you for what it tells us. We thank you for the proclamation of the gospel. We pray, Father, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions to this passage and that you would apply them to our heads, to our hearts, and to our hands. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, this is our last sermon on James, so this, this is a bit of a monument, a bit of a, a milestone before we jump into a new series on Abraham next week. And this is important because this is the last thing that James leaves us with. These are James' parting instructions, so we do well to pay extra attention here to what James has to say, what James has to tell us. And throughout this series, we've seen that James calls us to wisdom. And again and again, James has presented wisdom as living rightly before God with our neighbor in creation. And to be sure, prayer itself, which is what this passage is about, is a key, is a core practice of the Christian life. And so we should not be surprised that James presents prayers in precisely those parameters of wisdom. He shows us how prayer rightly connects us to God, to our neighbor, and to the very good world that God has created. And towards that end, I, I want to look at this passage under three headings. We have the example of prayer, we have the posture of prayer, and lastly, we have the assurance of prayer. So let's look at each in turn. The example of prayer. Well, 
as we orient ourselves to this passage, I think we do well to attend to the one personal example that James provides us in this passage. And that's the example of Elijah. Specifically, James speaks about how Elijah prays that it would not rain for three years and six months. And true to form, it is dry. It does not rain for that time. It does not rain until Elijah prays again for the water, for the rain, for the downpour to return. But why rain? What is significant about this? Why does James appeal to this particular example? Well, we have to remember that the Old Testament Israelites lived in a very dry and a very parched country. It was a place with very little rainfall. And as we prayed today, um, we're undergoing droughts in in the West. We, We, as a people, need rain. Water, in many ways, is life. Without water, we cannot live, at least not for long. But how does Elijah pray? Well, he doesn't pray in the way that we necessarily expect him to pray. He prays that it would not rain. And this is not the example, if we really think about it, that we would expect from James. He's not praying for the meeting of physical needs, but in some way, shape, or form, he's praying that they would be withheld. And that's curious. That's confusing. Elijah prays that the very thing that we need for physical life would not come. And you have to think that there's other faithful Israelites who are devoted to God, and they're praying during this time that it would rain. Maybe they don't know about Elijah's prayer. And they're praying for rain, and it doesn't come. At least it doesn't come until Elijah prays again in three and a half years. So what is going on here? Well, If you're familiar with the Old Testament account of Elijah, much of his ministry is set against the Canaanite deity, the Canaanite deity, Baal. And why is this important? Who or what is Baal? Well, many ancient Near Eastern religions at that time period in that place would associate one particular aspect of of nature with a particular god, with a particular deity. And what is Baal? Well, Baal is the god of the storm. Baal is the god of rain. So why would Elijah pray that the land remain dry? Well, he's trying to break the worship. He's trying to break the idolatry of his fellow people to Baal. He's worried because what they have done is identified one particular part of creation, the rain, water, downfall, and they've made that their functional God. The people of Israel believe that they need rain, that they need water more than they need God himself. And this is easy to understand, right? Without water, you cannot farm, you can't eat, you can't drink. It's essential to our vocational, to our social pursuits. Yet Elijah prays that the clouds be shut. So then let us ask ourselves, what would it take, what does it take to become a worshiper of Baal? Well, first and foremost, to do that, we have to run afoul of what James tells us in 1, 16, and 17. 
If, if you remember from an earlier sermon, James tells us, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And so to worship Baal is to forget every good gift, be it rain or radish or relationships. All of those are good gifts from God himself, the Father of lights. To worship Baal is to forget that we are wholly dependent upon God. And instead, it's to take one of the good gifts that God has given to us and to make that God in God's place. And again, there are few options for that idolatry that are more tempting than water. We need rain to harvest, to eat, and to drink. We need it for comfort. We need it for security. We need it for physical health. But again, Elijah prays that it would not rain. And to be sure, when God shuts up the clouds, he shows that he is powerful over this idol, over this deity, Baal. That God and God alone is the God of the rain, and he alone is the God of every single aspect of creation. He's the creator. But God also shows us something more. And I say this with trepidation. God shows us the relative worth of water. Again, we cannot live long without water. But God is showing his people that water is not the ultimate gift, that it is not something that should be worshipped. God alone should be the object of our ultimate love. God alone should be the object of our ultimate desire. And again, I say this with trepidation, but God is taking water from them so that he can demonstrate to them the radical dependence upon him. Look with me at Psalm 42, 1 through 2. Uh, We heard that read this morning. The psalmist writes, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It's proper for a deer to want water above everything and anything else. But this is not proper for a human. For a human to want water above anything and everything else is idolatry. It's Baal worship. And the irony is that it makes us less than human. We become like this deer. We become an animal. For when we pant for a gift of creation, when we want it most of all, we actually become less than what God intends. We forget, we forfeit, we forgo the deep and unique dignity that God has given to the human creature. So privileged are we that nothing short of God himself can satisfy the deepest desires of our heart. And so as a deer pants for water, so we should pant for God. As the psalmist says, he thirsts for God. He knows that God alone can refresh his parched soul. I'm sure he thirsts for food, for drink, career, romance, family, and friends. All of these are very, very good things. But none of these can quench our ultimate thirst, the deepest thirst that we experience deep in our soul. All these are good gifts, but they're meant to lead us to the giver, God himself. It's right to, repl- it's right to pray 
for relief from suffering. It's right to pray for each and every one of these good gifts. It's right to pray for physical healing. It's right to pray for restored relationships. It's right to pray for vocational opportunities. Again, there were likely many in Israel who prayed not to Baal, but to God that the rain would return. Yet he did not answer those prayers. And again, I say this with trepidation, but God is teaching his people how to thirst for himself. The example of Elijah teaches us that the ultimate aim of prayer is that in whatever happens, we are to cling more closely to God as our good Father. Sometimes this means that our sufferings are not taken away, but rather that God teaches us to thirst, to pant more deeply for him during these sufferings. But it's also important to remember that in this passage, the drought does not last forever. After three and a half years, Elijah prays that it would rain, and the water returns. And this is also a very important fact to keep note of. And towards this end, the the philosopher and and theologian Eleanor Stump is, is very helpful in untangling what's going on here. It keeps us from a danger when we remember that the rain returned, what Eleanor Stump calls the stern-minded attitude. And she describes this attitude as seeking and loving God only. All of your love is directed towards God, and you don't love anything else. You renounce all other worldly goods and worldly loves. She actually quotes a a theologian from, from church history who says it would be admirable for a person to stand wholly immune, wholly unaffected by watching a good friend die and feeling nothing, feeling no sadness, because you have renounced the love of that person wholly for the love of God. But, of course, that's an inhuman love. That is not what God is calling us to. One of the important ways we love God is as creator. And when we love God as creator, that means that we are called to love the good creation that he's given to us. And our neighbor is a part of that good creation. So then how are we to love creation? Well, Stump makes the point that a particular way that we learn to rightly love creation is through suffering. In particular, suffering teaches us how to love creation as a gift. Speaking of a person who has learned this lesson, Stump writes the following. Quote, a person in this condition does desire those things on which she has set her heart, but she desires them as gifts from God. Stump goes through several biblical accounts to narrate, to illustrate this truth, but perhaps the most pertinent example for us is that of Job. And remember that actually earlier in chapter 5, James himself appeals to the example of Job. If you're familiar with that story, Job loses everything. He loses family, resources, he loses physical health, he loses his status. He virtually loses everything but God himself. But then at the end, an interesting thing happens. Job actually receives all of those things back. In commenting on the conclusion to the book of Job, Stump writes the following, quote, What is surprising in the book of Job is not that Job gets tribal prosperity at the end of the story, but that he still wants it after his face-to-face encounter with God. 
And Stump says that this truth keeps us from the danger of that stern-minded attitude. Job has lost everything but God, and that has brought him closer to God. But this closeness has not destroyed his desire for the other gifts of God. Rather, what it has done is reformed his desire. Now he learns to love the created gifts of God as gifts from God. He loves them in a new way. He does not love them as God. That would be idolatry. Family, resources, health, status. These are not his gods. Rather, he loves these things as from God. And in the same way, Elijah is not calling us to some non-human plane. He's not calling us to dismiss our physical needs as irrelevant distractions that keep us from a pure spiritual life. Not at all. Elijah is doing full respect to our human embodiment. He prays for water and the rain returns. Elijah then and his fellow faithful Israelites are reminded that everything is a gift from God. They still love the rain, and rightly so, but now they're able to love the rain in a new way. They don't love the rain as God. That would be Baal worship, but they love the rain as from God, learning to receive the gift from the giver and worship the giver as part of that process. And that brings us to our second point, the posture of prayer. The example of Elijah is very helpful then in understanding the rest of the passage and helping us to understand what is James getting at. So then let's look at the first part bit by bit. Look with me first at James 5, 13. James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. What James presents us with are the two basic circumstances that characterize the human life, that of suffering and that of joy. And to be sure, we often experience these circumstances at one and the same time. In times of suffering, we come to him in prayer, asking that trials would be removed and that we would be conformed to love him more. So suffering brings us to God. But James is also telling us something else that brings us to God. In times of cheerful joy, we come to him in gratitude, thanking him for the good and undeserved gifts that he has lavished upon us. James is telling us that literally everything God brings into our life is intended to bring us closer to him, to cling to him more fiercely. As one commentator, Alec Mateer, writes of this passage, in this voice, in the voice of prayer and the voice of praise, they are at one, for alike they say that the will of God is good. And this fits perfectly with the example of Elijah, and it pushes us toward two important diagnostic questions that we should always be asking ourselves. Is our first response to suffering that of prayer to God? Is our first response to joy that of grateful praise to God? Are we letting both the hard and the good things in this life be vehicles by which we're driven to God? That's what James is telling us to do. And again, these often coincide. We often speak from places of both suffering and of joy. We may, co we may come to God in suffering pain, 
the pain of sickness, the fear of sickness, but at the same time, we may offer prayers of, of gratitude, thankfulness for the gifts of modern medical treatments, which he has given to us in helping us understand the human body and understand how to heal it. But James pushes us further still. Further still. Look with me at James 5, 14 through 16. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So what James does here is he presents us with the two most basic, basic things that work woe, that cause suffering in the human life, sickness and sin. And James is telling us to bring both of these things before God in prayer, to trust God, to foster a posture of full dependence upon God, on his goodness, on his graciousness, on his will. And to, prepare, and to pray in true faith and dependence upon God is at least to do three different things. One, it's to make our requests known to God, letting him know what is on our heart. Two, it's to trust his wisdom to bring about what he sees fit when he sees fit, that he is our wise and our good God. And third, holding fast to his gracious goodness, believing that he always gives us what's best for us rather than what we think is best for ourselves. And like Elijah, this may take us through times of drought. But this not only brings us closer to God, this also brings us closer to one another. When we let our neighbor in, we're able to pray with our neighbor. We realize we're not just dependent upon God, but we're dependent upon our neighbor. We're dependent upon the other. But to be prayed for is to really let the neighbor into our life. We have to share our suffering. We have to share our sickness. We have to share our trials with one another. That means we have to be open and admit that we do not have it all together. It means that we have to confess that we might not be that perfect image that we try so hard to broadcast to everyone else. It means admitting that there are deep sources of sadness in my life and inviting other persons into that. And this, in a very strong way, combats the pride that cuts us off from God and cuts us off from one another. It is difficult to confess the sufferings in our life. But James calls us further still. He calls us not just to confess these sufferings, but to confess our sin. And this is harder still. To confess sin is to say that there's something wrong in my life and it's my fault. It's to say I'm suffering and I'm the one who brought it about. It's to say that I am both wounded and wounder. To confess sin is to admit that I'm suffering, 
and I have brought this suffering upon myself. Please hear me. This does not apply to all of our suffering. But some of the suffering and sadness that we all experience is, in some degree, a result of our own sin. We all sin. And so we all make ourselves to suffer. We cannot forget that one of the things that Christ saves, our, saves us from is from ourselves. And so ask yourself, is my particular loneliness because of the way that I have treated others, my cruel words, actions of, of alienating them in some way, shape, or form? Is this particular suffering in my marriage? Is it because of my own neglect for my spouse and my children for giving too much attention to something or someone else? Is this problem, this suffering that I'm experiencing in my job, might it be because of some unethical practice that I am going about? Remember that Elijah's prayer was against Baal. And in 1 Kings 18, we actually get a glimpse at what this Baal worship looks like. We find that the worshipers of Baal, uh, quote, cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And this is a picture of sin. When we sin, we destroy ourselves. Every cruel word, every self-serving action of which we are all guilty. Each of these acts is an act of self-destruction. Each act is cutting ourselves deeper and letting the blood flow more heavily. Sin just is self-destruction, and so sin is self-inflicted suffering. And this is not easy to confess, but this is what James calls us to because nothing more fully destroys the pride that separates us from God and from one another than confessing our sin. Nothing is as strong to restore broken relationships than this. And so James calls us to confess our sins to one another and even to be open to the words of another. He invites us to let neighbors into our sin and have them pray for our sin. He invites us into uncomfortable but loving conversations that guide us in the path of life. As James says in 5.20, My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wondering will save his soul, save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the posture of a community built upon praying for one another. It's a community not built upon pride, but it's a community built upon a dependence on God and a mutual dependence on one another. But we also have to remember that the rain does not always come, or at least the rain does not always come in the way that we think. Sometimes that sickness persists and worsens. To again quote Alec Matir at length on this passage, he says the following, quote, The perfect will of God may be done in the lesser benefit of a bodily return to health or in the supreme benefit of fullness of life in the immediate presence of Jesus. For this reason, we must always say in all our prayers, 
not just those concerned with healing, thy will be done. Its effect is to place ourselves unreservedly into the hands of that infinite wisdom, love, and power which belong to our Heavenly Father. To say, thy will be done, does not impose a restriction on what we ask. Rather, it lifts all earthly restrictions. End quote. But when God asks us to trust in this way, it's crucial to note that God is not calling us to do anything that he himself has not already done in Christ Jesus, which brings us to our third point, the assurance of prayer. On the night before Jesus was going to the cross, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed fervently, he prayed in distress. He tells the disciples that his very soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. But in that night, Christ casts himself wholly on the assurance of thy will be done. Matthew 26 tells us that three times Jesus offered the following prayer. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What's going on here? Isn't Christ God? Do we, do we have an instance of, of God obeying God? Do we have two gods speaking to one another? What is happening? Well, of course, as, as Christians, we believe in the, the Trinity, that God exists in one divine nature and three divine persons. We also know that Christ himself is fully God and fully human. We know that Christ has the one divine nature and he also has a human nature. And so we find that the one divine person of the Son acts according to both natures. He acts according to his divine nature and his human nature. Augustine is, is helpful here. Augustine points out that when we, when we read the Gospels, we, we find something strange. We find instances of, of Christ identifying himself as, as God, and also speaking as such. But then we find other interesting things. We find Christ saying things like, the Father is greater than I. But Augustine warns us not to be misled. Augustine says, we have to remember that Christ has two natures, and he speaks as such. Augustine says that when we look at the words of Christ, we have to ask ourselves, is he speaking according to the form of God, whereby Christ is equal to the Father? Or is Augustine speaking, or is Christ speaking according to the form of servant, where he is less than the Father? In each word of Christ, we have to ask, is he speaking as God, or is he speaking as human? In Gethsemane, what we find is the one person of the divine Son speaking as a human. But what exactly is he saying here? How are we to understand this petition, not as I will, but as you will? Well, again, we, we can be helped here by church history. There's a 7th century theologian, Maximus the Confessor, and he actually gave quite a bit of his career in trying to untangle this episode, and he works out a theology of, of the will. And he says that when we think about our will, it's that which is a part of our nature, but it produces desires that are proper to that nature. So if you have a human will, 
your human will will produce desires for food, for drink, for, for God. These are desires proper to being human. Of course, we should love God most of all, but it wouldn't be proper for a human to, to desire, to want, to will, to, to eat a, a stinky carcass that it comes upon in, in the woods. That might be proper for a wolf um, or some kind of animal to desire, but, but that wouldn't be proper for a human. So with that in mind, how are we to understand not as I will, but as you will? Is this disobedience? No. This actually shows us just how human Christ actually is. As Ian McFarlane, a theologian, speaks on Maximus, speaking on Gethsemane, McFarlane says the following, quote, Jesus' hesitation in the Gethsemane prayer should not be understood in terms of sin, because fear of death is a natural impulse and therefore has nothing sinful about it. In order for Jesus to accomplish his mission, his human nature must die. And death is not something that Jesus desires. Death, human death, is a tragic effect of the intrusion of sin into God's good world. If Jesus desired death, he would be desiring an enemy. He would be desiring an affront to God's good creation. Christ did not want to die. If he did, he would not be desiring a good thing. Christ desires life. But we can go beyond this. We can actually go beyond Maximus because it's not just physical death that Christ does not desire. It's something more. As theologian Francis Turretin explains of the cross, Christ experiences, quote, a desertion, a spiritual and internal suffering from a most oppressive sense of God's wrath resting upon him because of our sins. So why does Christ ask that this cup be taken from him? Why is this his prayer? Because he desires good things. Christ desires physical life. And most of all, Christ desires the loving presence of God's pleasure. Christ desires life and Christ desires God. And on the cross, both of these things will be taken from him. This is the cup that he will drink. And because of that, he is sorrowful even to death. Yet he is willing to give up both, to give up both life and God for us. He's willing to submit wholly to the will of God. He's willing to forfeit his claim on life and God so that we ourselves will never, ever lose them. Because Christ took the wrath and the displeasure that we deserve for our sins before God, we can receive the loving presence of God that only Christ himself deserves. This is the bitter cup that he drinks so that we can taste the sweet draft of God. And this water and this water alone is what our soul should ultimately thirst for. And because of that, we know that when we pray, we are never going to be called to give up what Christ did. Elijah and James tell us that God is our greatest need, and we know that that will never be taken away. 
Because Christ gave up the greatest desire of his human will, we know that unlike Christ, every prayer will take us deeper into God's love and presence. But there's one last question here. Don't we, like Christ, still die? Yes, but it's important to note that Christ did not stay dead. On the third day, his body was resurrected. And his human body is raised never to die again. To be without any and all sickness and corruption. Will God heal all of the sicknesses that attack us in this life? He may or he may not. And let us pray, though, that he does. To pray for that is to pray for a good thing. Not the best thing, but a very, very good thing. But will he heal all of our sicknesses eventually? Absolutely. Every single one. For Christ's present is our future. Because of the work of Christ, we not only have God, but we also have a hope that one day we will be without illness, corruption, sickness, without all of the physical problems that bring us pain. This is the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And it might be in three and a half years, or it might be in three and a half thousand years. But we know that one day it will rain, and our bodies will sprout anew under the downpour of God's love. Because Christ prayed and lost both God and life, when we pray, we can be confident that those things will never be taken from us and that physical life will be returned in the fullest measure. We may experience deep sorrow, even sorrow unto death. But God and life are always with us. They are the free gifts purchased for us by Christ himself. And so let us receive them gladly and gratefully. This is the assurance we have in prayer, that God always gives us what is best and will withhold no good thing from us. All is gift, so let us receive everything from God as such. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that we can come before you in prayer. And we thank you that when we pray, you listen, and you listen in your love and wisdom, and you give us what is best for us. And we know that all of this rests upon the foundation of that prayer many years ago in Gethsemane, where Christ said, not my will, but your will be done. Father, enable us to pray with that same assurance and confidence. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.